0: You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School. Are you looking for another business podcast that addresses some of the world's most complex challenges, including climate change, with the help of experts engaged in cutting-edge research? Then you should check out If Then, the new podcast from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. If Then is made for curious people looking for answers to challenging questions. Each episode focuses on an in-depth conversation with a Stanford GSB professor about the innovations and insights they're most excited about and why they matter. If you're looking for a place to start, I recommend their recent episode with Bill Barnett, Stanford GSB's professor of organizational behavior about climate change and sustainable business ideas. The premise of the episode? If we want to seriously address the climate crisis, then we need to engage foolish business ideas. It's a fascinating conversation. So don't wait. Follow if then. That's if slash then wherever you get your podcasts. Today there are about two million electric rickshaws on the streets of northern India. But these rickshaws charge at night. And it takes all night and they drive off at seven thirty eight in the morning. And they do the morning traffic. They've got a real problem as far as the vehicle utilization is concerned because that driver has to go home at midday. And he goes home and he plugs that vehicle into the wall because it's in the red zone on its charge. He's not using the vehicle for most of the productive day. Against that, we've come up with a solution.
1: What would it look like if the majority of vehicles on the road in the world's most crowded cities were electric? Uday Kemka has insights. I'm Rebecca Emanuel. And this is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. Together, we explore climate change's business implications and opportunities. In this season, we focus on entrepreneurship in the climate change space. I'm the director of social entrepreneurship at the Harvard Innovation Labs. I work with current and future entrepreneurs every day. One thing entrepreneurs are obsessed with is how to grow their venture and achieve economies of scale to make their idea profitable. So today we'll be talking about the possibility of a massive transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles in India, one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And rather than focusing on EVs as luxury purchases for individuals, here we focus on their potential for mass transit and vehicles for hire. We're joined by HBS alum Uday Kemka, co-founder of Sun Mobility, who's on a mission to accelerate mass adoption of electric mobility by making it more affordable and accessible. Mobility's quick, battery-swapping model aims to overcome things like high upfront costs, range anxiety, and long charging times. They're forging new partnerships that allow massive scale, working with the likes of India Oil, Piaggio, and Uber to make electric vehicles the default choice of Indians, regardless of income. Welcome, Uday. We're excited to have you here today.
0: Delighted to be on, Rebecca. Thank you for having me.
1: I want to start with a picture of a normal day. When, when you see electric vehicles in the streets of many US cities, they're often personal vehicles, but the picture is different in India. Can you just tell me what I'd see sitting alongside a normal road?
0: So Rebecca, a normal road in India has tremendous density. There is not a square foot of that road that isn't occupied by some vehicle or creature. You're absolutely right. As far as electric vehicles are concerned, in India, there can be a few personal vehicles, but 90% of what we're talking about are mass transit applications. Three-wheel vehicles that carry people, like taxis, we call them rickshaws and autos. In Thailand, they call them tuk-tuks, uh, and as well as electric buses. Um, these formats carry 85% of middle-class commuter miles in urban cities in India. So that's what we mean when we talk about electric vehicles in a normal Indian street.
1: And let's say I drive all day for my job or I buy cars for a shared vehicle company. Why are electric vehicles so appealing?
0: Well, you've got to look at it first of all, Rebecca, from the country's standpoint. It's not just about the Paris climate goals of India, which is becoming a very important player in those negotiations. It is also to do with the air pollution Of our cities, we have 14 of the 20 most polluted cities in the world. And even more than that, it's about the fundamental macroeconomic imbalance of the Indian economy, which imports a huge amount of its fossil fuels. And yet, it also has the highest solar irradiation on the planet, which allows the generation of huge amounts of clean energy which can be redirected to substitute that fossil fuel in the form of electric mobility. So if you look at it at the systemic and national level, there's a tremendous impetus towards electric mobility. At the personal level, uh, the pros are it's such a clean ride. It's such a wonderful driving experience compared to a traditional vehicle and without any of the pollution of a two-stroke engine. The traditional con, which our company is trying to solve, is it's been a more expensive product for the end customer.
1: So tell me a little bit about how you've solved that.
0: I'd like you to imagine a 12-meter bus from the greatest EV country on the planet right now, which is China. A traditional Chinese electric bus has a 3,000-kilogram battery. Now, just imagine that, Rebecca, in your mind's eye. Three tons of weight that takes up 30 passenger seats. It's pretty significant. It's so heavy. And you know, the reason that that vehicle has that 3,000 kilogram battery is it's designed to be charged all night and to run all day. But you can imagine the problem with that weight and that crowding out of the passenger space is met with an even more important problem, which is that it vastly increases the price of that vehicle because the battery is so expensive. In India, my partner Chetan Maini, who has been the great EV entrepreneur of our country and was on the government's commission for electric mobility and looked at the data from around many cities across India, realized that As far as municipal buses are concerned, 90% of bus routes in these large Indian cities are less than 50 kilometers. And yet the Chinese solution was designed for a single charge, creating a 230 kilometer all day driving range, which made no sense. If you could come back to the bus station every 50 kilometers, you could collapse the size of that battery by swapping it. And you could swap that robotically. And therefore, you could take away 75, 80% of the cost, the weight, the size of the battery. If, meanwhile, you were to own that battery and provide the energy as a service, suddenly you'd collapse the cost of the vehicle to being at par with a diesel or ICE vehicle for the first time on the planet.
1: ICE, that's internal combustion engine, right? That's the old style way of charging my car?
0: That's exactly right.
1: So that makes a ton of sense if I'm a bus driver or if I'm the bus company. If I'm an auto rickshaw driver and I drive one of those awesome three wheelers and I wanted to charge my electric vehicle, at the moment my understanding is I drive to a normal gas charging station like Indian oil, and I could also swap my battery and pay about the same as if I'm using oil. Can you tell me how that came about?
0: So let's go back to the situation before Sun Mobility's battery swapping uh, technology was developed. Uh, Prime Minister Modi, our prime minister, um, for the reasons I described earlier to do with India's um, economic imbalance, decided to promote mass mobility of these three-wheel micro-mobility formats back in 2014-15. Today, there are about two million electric rickshaws on the streets of Northern India. But these rickshaws charge at night and it takes all night and they drive off at 7.38 in the morning and they do the morning traffic they take people from the subway station to work but the problem is not just that the batteries are very expensive they have to buy these batteries these lead acid batteries and you know if they and, and they diminish in their capacity over 6 months so that they have to give them back after 6 months and spend a lot of money to buy another battery with an ever diminishing range they're also heavy but most importantly they've got a real problem as far as the vehicle utilization is concerned. Because that driver, who I mentioned earlier, who goes and plies the traffic from 7.38 in the morning, has to go home at midday. And he goes home and he plugs that vehicle into the wall because it's in the red zone on its charge. And he relaxes all afternoon. And he's got a half charge at about 4.35 in the afternoon. And then he goes out and catches the peak of the evening traffic. It's not a disaster as he gets the two peaks, but from an asset utilization standpoint, you can imagine how suboptimal that is. He's not using the vehicle for most of the productive day. Against that, we've come up with a solution. With the buses, it's a 20-foot robot that does the swap in under three minutes. You bring the battery back. It's a smart battery, so it's got three layers of electronics. It's sending data through a communications chip all the time to a digital twin in the cloud because it's our battery. We're monitoring it 24-7. And when it comes to that station, you open the cupboard, you put your old battery in. It sort of welcomes it home and says, you know, kind of welcome home 705, how are you? Starts all the diagnostics and releases a new battery. Now, the interesting thing is that the new battery is configured to your specific vehicle spec. The OEMs have a spec for what they want the battery to do, and um, that's exactly what it tunes into. And so you take that battery, and you put it into the vehicle you're driving, and the embedded software means that it integrates with that, and you drive off. Now, with this, you can actually end up driving uh, the entire productive day and evening.
1: And this network now is not just in one place, two places. Is that right?
0: We've now gone 12 cities across India. And of course, our ambition, the dream, is to be in every city and in every place. In order to do that, we've partnered with India's largest oil and gas company, uh, Indian Oil. And Indian Oil has more petrol stations and the number two and number three fleet owners combined. It's in every nook of our country and we've already started to deploy our swapping stations right within the petrol stations as you uh, described earlier. And what's interesting about it is really there could be no other easy solution. The problem in our country is that oil and gas stations um, are very centrally located in congested areas of the city very often, which means the access uh, to these petrol stations is tough. So can you imagine what it would be like to install charging points into these stations? It would just kill the traffic completely and kill the existing uh, fossil fuel business as well. So instead of that, the swapping model makes it very easy because the owner of the vehicle can just park it anywhere, take out the battery and walk in to where the ATM used to be. These days, people use um, cellular payment systems, so ATMs are becoming less popular, or go into the air-conditioned area of the petrol station and pop in their battery and get a new one and just walk out again. And it means that the entire traffic management becomes um, optimized in a way that would not be possible if you tried to use a charging technology of a more traditional kind.
1: A lot of people will know the story of Better Place, It is the Israeli startup that tried to launch battery swapping and failed, or people might know the story of Tesla who considered battery swapping, but instead built an embedded battery. Tell me what makes this case different.
0: Shai Ghasi, uh, who I have known well, someone i um you know think is a courageous person set up better place with a vision of battery swapping uh in israel and then some other countries um but there are some differences better place firstly was created much before the ubiquitous shift to electric mobility that we're seeing now and that meant that he could only work with one OEM.
1: So just to clarify, working with one OEM, an original equipment manufacturer, so in this case, the manufacturer of the vehicle.
0: We work with many, many OEMs. We have integrated the vehicles of market share leaders in every segment, scooters, motorbikes, small rickshaws, big rickshaws, buses, whereas he had to work with one You're absolutely right. Secondly, uh, it was early days and the paradigm that they came up with was a capital-heavy paradigm. The idea was swapping petrol stations with civil engineering built into the, the whole system, which made them pretty expensive. We've gone in the opposite direction and we have created containers that are very inexpensive and very mobile. Thirdly, the focus was on personal mobility, and our, pers- our focus is entirely on mass transit. Why does that matter? Because it means you can sweat your asset uh, with constant usage as opposed to in personal applications where you only get a limited asset utilization.
1: So what you're saying here is if I'm driving my personal electric vehicle, I do it only however much I drive that day, which, you know, if I'm sitting in front of my computer a lot of the day or I'm outside a lot of the day, it might not be that much. But if I'm a professional auto rickshaw driver, then I can use it as much as I might work and then lend it to someone else.
0: That's exactly right. So that's a great multiple in terms of the number of hours you're using. And that means that the station that we own also gets an intensity of usage and capex return It also means that when you we do something different to tesla the central problem of electric mobility is the expensive battery what elon musk did was to wrap an expensive sports car around it (laughs) which is fine and that allows you to uh you know drive your your tesla against your friend's porsche up to lake tahoe from palo alto or whatever but you must imagine emerging market realities where traffic conditions are 15 miles an hour. We've done something very different. We have not emphasized very high performance metrics, but instead tried to emphasize those parameters that would increase our return on capital um, and and keep the product affordable. And we've done that by emphasizing battery life which is considerably more than Western, Western paradigms. Now this works if you can then bring those future cycles of battery into today's net present value by sweating the asset day and night. And that's your mass mobility model right there and quite different to anything that's happened in, in Western models that I've looked at. Okay, let me tell you a secret. You don't need to be in a Harvard classroom to hear the best and brightest minds in business. I'm Chris Lanane, host of Harvard Business School Online's new podcast, The Parlor Room. On each episode, I sit down with esteemed Harvard Business School professors to demystify vital business concepts in a way that's entertaining and insightful. We break down academic theory without sacrificing depth. Want to learn how to become a master negotiator? We have the perfect episode for you or perhaps the best way to build your personal brand. Yep, we've got that covered too. On each episode of The Parlour Room, you'll gain useful takeaways to navigate the business world from wherever you are. Here business concepts come to life. Listen to The Parlour Room on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I've also heard that sometimes the um, maintenance is less on electric vehicles just because there aren't as many moving parts. Has that been your experience?
0: Oh, of course, yeah. That would be the case universally for electric vehicles. It's, it's a, a total paradigm shift. And that doesn't matter whether you're battery swapping or using a traditional electric vehicle. Um, you know, It's always the case. And uh, there's so many advantages. Wear and tear is much less and it lasts longer. And if you've driven an electric vehicle, you know how difficult it is to go back.
1: (laughs) Yes, you can certainly imagine also if I'm that auto rickshaw driver who's driving every day that I love the fact that I'm not always doing repairs.
0: So we have a joint partnership with one of the world's largest scooter companies, Piaggio, and their ad campaign, it's making a simple auto rickshaw cool and modern and the rickshaw driver has his own app, and, which is co-designed co-de- by Sun Mobility and the Sun Mobility swapping system and the cool Piaggio scooter.
1: Sun Mobility is partnered with Uber. Can you tell me, what's it like to be partnering with Uber?
0: Uber are terrific. They are very committed to this shift, uh, both to micromobility and to sustainability. We are learning together. There's a huge universe of uh, learning ahead. Um what's exciting about the new economy is how you are really innovating at the edge. Uh, and we have a great partnership with them, and we anticipate huge volumes together. But you must understand that for us, it's an ecosystem. It's not just Uber. You need to integrate the swapping technology with many, many different manufacturers. In our model, at least, we don't believe there's such a thing as a Ford uh, oil and gas station, Ford petrol station, a petrol station is for Ford and, and General Motors and everybody else. So firstly, you have to integrate with all the different manufacturers. Then you integrate with someone like Uber, but also with fleet partners, as well as ride-hailing apps. And then you need to integrate with the delivery points like Indian oil and uh, and other power distribution points. So it's the classic network economy business, Rebecca. Tough to set up, but then with very high barriers to entry and therefore hopefully defensible margins. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying to reduce costs dramatically, you're in the energy business, and that's the constant imperative of anyone playing in that business. And it's also really important if we want the scalability of this to get to a point where it impacts climate change. But anyway, that's the nature of the business. And Uber is a very important part of that ecosystem.
1: How do you see sun mobility evolving in the future?
0: It's so interesting because you know you are trained classically to look at the core business plan of a business. But what amazes me about sun mobility is that aside from the core Indian micromobility business plan, it's like a basket of options we are taking micro mobility to other countries you can imagine the urban density and micro mobility characteristics of southeast asia uh, of eastern africa of other emerging markets but even of developed country micro mobility markets in last mile delivery food delivery document apparently people don't really deliver documents very much anymore maybe the last who actually gets documents delivered to me but you know there are many kinds of micro delivery there will be also integrating a swappable delivery van at the right moment so all that b2b activity for e-commerce players for dhl type players um, and others as well uh you know is a huge market for us in europe and in the us on micromobility. and then you apply the same analog to bus india is a huge bus market for electrics but Uh, I'm also an ex-banker, and I'm also interested in Western markets where credit quality of government partners is high. And, you know, we've hosted and been part of a few electric mobility bus summits, and we're shocked to find that people don't really fully understand bus battery swapping models. We can swap a a battery in less than three minutes, and we've massively compressed the cost of the whole system. And as a result, we offer a very cost- Uh, effective solution, you know, to Western partners who are fleet operators or municipal governments. Um, And with high credit quality characteristics, we can build a new asset class in terms of yield that pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and others can benefit from. So you can imagine the financial innovation that can come out of that. Talking of financial innovation, our batteries produce huge amounts of data 24-7, not only on the batteries, but on driver behavior and traffic patterns, everything else. So you can imagine the fintech businesses that come out of that. Insurance, leasing. So I'm quite amazed by the kind of prolific option value of these new business models as they emerge. None of that means you should lose your core focus. Of course, you should lose your focus. Uh, but, you know, you do find the most extraordinary business development activities we even had an approach from someone in Las Vegas who said that their electric buses go in a circuit. Anytime there's a circuit of less than 50 kilometers, we should be extremely competitive. And they said they had one, and could we come to Las Vegas? It was a little early for us, but no doubt one day we'll try and contribute to that microeconomy as well.
1: So take the, the conversation you're having about pension funds and developing a new asset class. Can you walk me through it with an example?
0: Sure you remember, there was a time when governments produced their own energy and then there was the, an innovation that changed everything. And that was a power purchase agreement, as you know. And from that was born the renewable energy industry because, you know, private sector players could invest in power plants and sell that solar energy into the grid. Well, we're at the same point for EV bus mobility. In other words, you could create these bankable and robust long-term contracts with cities and states wherein you could provide municipal bus services per kilometer now that means that the operator could just operate as an opco and pension funds and sovereign wealth funds can own these buses and the charging or swapping stations and provide that on a per kilometer basis on under long-term uh, transportation procurement contracts and that's really exciting because It means that neither do cities need to own buses, nor do transportation companies need to own buses. But you have a whole new asset class that uh, yield-seeking investors can own and make this so much easier for people who are good at managing uh, services um, or delivering uh, public utilities.
1: You're saying instead of the city of Boston or the city of Delhi running all their own buses, someone who's good at it will run it, and then other folks no matter who they are, governments, pension funds, put their money in and, uh, and there's a contract based on how much distance they cover.
0: That's exactly right. And for that, what's really important and which is so exciting, and geeky people like me really find this super exciting, is you have the ability to innovate a new standard of standardized bankable contracts all over the planet that will create this vast new asset category Um, generating new yield um, for uh, pension funds that are very often underfunded.
1: I don't always hear the word geeky, banker, and innovate together, but I really like it. (laughs) So can you take me back to the beginning of, of that combination, geeky, banker, and innovate, and tell me what you used to work on when you first graduated business school and how you got into climate and EV? You
0: know, so my beginning, the beginning of my career was in the 80s where you were trained not to allow your ethical and moral motivations to be too apparent because you were trained to just talk about IRR and multiples thankfully the world has changed dramatically over these last decades even in that era you were encouraged to focus on those sectors of the economy that generated you know large-scale net present value And it wasn't clear whether new energy and new transportation would do that. And so I was always encouraged to focus on those passions of mine, which I'd had from a very young age through our family foundation. So when I returned to the group, our board would say, show us examples of where you can build a billion dollar business doing this. And there were very, very few and far between. And so I had to do that through our family foundation. And we worked on many things, focusing on how large-scale sovereign wealth funds and pension funds invested. And, and, and I that became a big theme of my philanthropic life because I'd been trained as a financier. But back in 2015, I approached our family board and I said, you know, I have in a very loyal way, I hope, uh, tried to focus on all aspects um, of our group's business, our family group's business in every industry that the board wanted me to focus on, uh, as well as innovating and creating private equity and venture capital institutions. And would you please give me permission? Would you give me a mandate from now to the day I die only to focus on businesses that could create significant economic value, but also make a significant impact on climate change mitigation?
1: What did they say?
0: Well, they knew about this passion They'd seen it for 25 years. And by this stage in 2015, you could see many businesses that had created multi-billion dollar market cap um, innovating in this field. And so, you know, they were tremendously supportive. And I feel so grateful and lucky to have, um, to work in a family business where we share a sense of moral purpose together. And since that, since 2015, uh, there was not a single thing i do as a business person or as a philanthropist uh, that isn't focused on large-scale climate change mitigation. And I feel proud that Sun Mobility is is part of that puzzle, although by no means the only part of it.
1: There's a lot of other people out there who are thinking about climate and also thinking about their careers. What advice would you give to others who are thinking about making a transition from um, a career that hasn't been in climate? into climate entrepreneurship
0: the superficial thing for me to say but it coincides with the truth is that there are tremendous opportunities today in building a career focused on mitigating climate change because mitigating climate change is in all aspects of the way our societies operate our economies operate the way we generate electricity and energy the way we transport ourselves, the way we build our buildings, the way we treat our forests, the way we manage our land, there's hardly anything that does not have opportunities to create economic value and at the same time mitigate carbon. I mean, it's abundant. You would need to be super blind not to see um, the dollar signs on every tree around you in 2020. It's just everywhere if you have the sensitivity and the imagination just to explore for yourselves. However, that's not the comment I'm going to make. The comment <laughs> I'm going to make is, for God's sake, we've got five years to make a difference. You know, Paris Agreement 2015, we had 10 years, arguably. Friends of mine are returning, having seen these crater these, you know, stadium-sized holes in the Siberian permafrost where that secondary effect that you were reading about of methane release after permafrost melt has already happened. And you're fully aware of the Arctic melt and the ocean acidification. Now, why are these things important? Because if we cannot stop the level of carbon rising to the point of significantly accelerated global warming, The problem is that you will suddenly see these natural effects getting to such scale that they are very, very difficult to stop. And that is a big problem because then even if we do move everything to solar or to electric mobility, we just can't stop that runaway train very easily. So the battle is the next five years. And every human who listens to this podcast in whatever walk of life you're in, don't just do it because you can make money and create value for yourself and your family, but do it because it's existentially important. And the only way we can really make a difference is to harness the vast power of capitalism in this direction. And there's so many ways to do that. And if you're an HBS alum listening to this or a student listening to this, you have an infinite set of possibilities to make a large scale difference. And the words large scale are important is if you end up doing something that makes you feel good, but it doesn't make a sufficient quantitative difference to carbon, that may not be worthy of who you are. Ask yourself that question. Could this make a quantitative difference to carbon over the next five to 10 years? If it can, you will find a way of making money and creating net present value. Forgive me, I didn't mean to hijack your question for a pitch, but I do think we're in a very unusual moment in the history of humankind. And so, um, you know, I, I speak from the heart.
1: Thank you. I think that one can't end on a better note than that. I really appreciate it.
0: Rebecca, it's been an honor for me. Thank you very much.
1: That's it for this episode of Climate Rising. Next time, how the forestry industry can pivot from being a major greenhouse gas emitter to driving large-scale carbon solutions. We talk with David Brand, CEO of New Forests, about what it takes to transform the forestry industry. He outlines how to use forestry to keep natural forests from being cut down and the new financing solutions that underpin this change. Climate Rising is produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. I'm your host, Rebecca Emanuel. This episode was created with the help of Associate Producer, Mika McFarlane, HBS Class of 2020, and producer Mary Dew. Thanks as always to the team from HBS Business and Environment Initiative that created and support the podcast Mike Toffel, Jennifer Nash, Lynn Shank, and Elise Clarkson. You can subscribe to Climate Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback. You can also find show notes, links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising homepage climaterising.hbs.edu.